if I was learning to play the trumpet, I'd have to run scales every day. Scales are boring, but I must, in order to play the trumpet, be able to do that without thinking. And that takes practice. So being able to take those unique things that only you see in the world, those really observational things that are unique to you and get them onto the page clearly is you running scales. So getting to that voice is about you practicing your uniqueness and being able to articulate it on the page clearly so that other people go, wow, you're the only person could have done that. This is the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a good review. My guest today is screenwriter Quentin Peoples. Quentin has been a professional screenwriter for almost 30 years. He began his career writing indie features and television films, but for the past 15 years, he's written for TV shows, such as Flash Forward on ABC, The Last Ship for TNT, the adaptation of the Stephen King novel 11-22-63 on Hulu, as well as Marvel's Runaways. Currently, he is the co-showrunner of the upcoming limited series Echoes on Netflix. Quentin is a very thoughtful person, and I think you will enjoy our conversation. Quentin, welcome to the Act One Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and you've been busy working on uh, this new show. Uh, I believe it's called Echoes uh, for um, for Netflix, and you're the co-showrunner on the project. And uh, why don't we just start there? And I'd, I'd love yeah. to know, uh, talk a little bit more about uh, your background and things like that. But let's just start at the at the thing that the the thing you're currently working on, and just tell people how did you get involved in Echoes, and, and what's the show about? Well, it's an interesting way in in the sense that if you go all the way back, um, I worked with Brian Yorkey, who was the creator and showrunner of 13 Reasons Why on season three um, to help break the season story arc of season three. I had a few weeks off between my um, Marvel show, the show that I was working at the time, which was Marvel's Runaways. I had a few weeks off and he said, can you come help this mini room uh, break the story for season three? I said, sure. So we had a great time there. Um, I went back to my Marvel job. He finished off 13 Reasons Why. And then just as kind of COVID was hitting, he called me and said, I've taken on this project from a young writer in Australia who has created the show. Um, but she's super young um, and inexperienced and she needs some help. So Netflix has asked me to take it on and I have, but I think it's something that would appeal to you. Are you interested? You know, can I send it over? And I said, sure. So he sent me her pilot um, draft, which I loved. And I said, yeah, you know, this is something I'm interested in. And so at that point, Um, we assembled a mini room of just a few writers and a couple of directors to answer some questions around some story issues that Netflix had. And then Netflix said, if you can answer these questions for us, we'll go ahead and green light the show and you'll be off and running. So we did that. 
Um, we answered those questions. They said, okay, love it. And then all those people got fired. And we were like, okay, well, wow. we've got to believe that we're probably done. <laughs> but that was not the case. Um, the new team that came in was like, yeah, 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 let's keep going. And so we did. And that it has taken a long time. And I would I would say that a lot of that has to do, obviously, with the way things progressed over the pandemic. So had we not been dealing with the pandemic, it probably would not have taken the amount of time that it has taken. Um, but we spent almost five months of um, last year shooting it in North Carolina. Um, and we're just in post now. The name of the show is Echoes. And the premise of the show is uh, identical twin sisters have been secretly switching lives every year on their birthday. Uh, and then one of them goes missing. And the other sister is left to play both sisters and try and unravel the mystery of where her sister went. Um, so it's it's a lot of fun, a lot of Hitchcock twists and turns, um, a little Southern Gothic. Um, but yeah, um, Michelle wow. Monaghan plays two roles in it. We were talking before we came on about the VFX piece. Um, she plays both sisters, which meant that every scene which she was in had to be shot twice, once playing one sister and once playing the other sister, which is very complicated from a technical standpoint. Not to mention, I'm sure she could wax rhapsodic about the her drama. I know it, it was a lot of work. Um, but wow. yeah, so there's a lot of work all the way around, but it, it's a ton of fun. I think people get a big kick out of it. Well, I'm looking forward to it. That sounds, you start talking about Southern Gothic and Hitchcockian and you know, you're, it's right up my. <laughs> yeah, I think you'll do it. I think, I think most people will. It's, it, it's a really fun, entertaining ride. So it's, yeah, it's fun. When, uh, when you, um, when you, you know, when you're looking at a project like that to be a part of, um, I'm I'm curious for you, for someone who has been working in the business uh, for as long as you have, what excites you when you read a script? Like what just like, because obviously I'm not to be cynical, but I'm sure you've, you've, you've maybe not seen it all, but you've seen a lot, right? You've read yeah. a lot. You've, you know, uh, at this kind of point in your career, probably not, a, probably may, and maybe I'm misspeaking here, but probably not a lot of things kind of get you out of your chair right away. And so I'm just curious, what does, what does get you excited? What does excite you about other people's scripts that would make you want to be involved in something like this? Yeah, I think for me, and you're right in, in your whole um, thinking there, it has progressed. It is different now than it used to be. Um, and I would say that the, um, the number one thing for me right now is it has to have that really big hook at the center of it that is entertaining. So I say to people all the time, I'm not the only person that says it, but I currently am in the entertainment business. I'm interested in things that are going to entertain people. So let's assume that it's a super political story. Um, or it's a drug addiction story or whatever, I'm not gonna go for those things. It's just not, 
the time and effort and the personal involvement is too heavy. And so I won't go for those things. They have to really be entertaining. And, you know, you can hear it inside the pitch for echoes. Um, Oh, twin sisters who switch every year on their birthday. Like that, I can just, I understand the entertainment value of that. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons that I've been involved for so long in the Marvel universe is, oh, teenagers find out their parents are supervillains. Like, I, I just understand that I can go to work every day and be excited about breaking that story. And it's not to disparage the drug stories or any the political things or anything like that. It's just that at this point in my life, I need to be making the shows that I most want to watch. And they need to be entertaining. Um, I respect and admire a lot of other work out there. Um, but I'm just not, I'm not the guy who can come to work every day and break some of the stories on some of these shows. It's just, I don't have that in me anymore. You, uh, you bring up a really interesting, I want to kind of go here. A little, we're, we're getting a little early into the, uh, maybe the nuts and bolts a little bit, but that's totally mm-hmm. okay. Cause I think you bring up something interesting and that is this hook, this entertaining hook. I mean, essentially you're talking about uh, uh, the premise and yeah. you're and for you, you're saying, I want a premise that just like like you said, every day it's like boom, it gets me excited. So for the aspiring writers out there, when we say to them, you know, log lines and premise, mm-hmm. um, what's your advice on creating and conceptualizing and then actually then executing like on it? Well, execution is very different, but what do, what's your advice on? on uh, conceptualizing that entertaining hooky premise that's going to get people excited about your project. Well, it has to entertain you first, right? And so if it probably, if it entertains you, it's going to entertain a lot of other people. So this comes from what it is about the, the initial idea that you are passionate about. And so you have to, um, know yourself well enough. You have to know what your loves are, what you're really passionate about so that you can really articulate that clearly and distill it in your story. Meaning that um, you're answering for the audience, well, for first for the studio, the network, the movie studio, whatever. Why should I come here? Why should I listen? And if, if it doesn't hook you first, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, then you're never going to get there. So you need to be able to have a lot of passion around what that is. Like if you're a sci-fi person, you have to be able to clearly articulate what it is about this sci-fi premise that makes you so excited. Oh, I'm going to take you this place and you're never going to believe it. It's going to be so great. It has to set you on fire. That's the primary thing. Like if you get too far ahead of yourself and you make it a super intellectual exercise or you're opening up this deep corner of the human psyche, that's for later. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's later. Right now it's like two sisters switch lives and one of them goes missing. You got to like that has to make you lean in as a creator first. And if you're not there yet, then 
then you're not there yet. You, you haven't actually been able to tap into something that's super exciting and can be articulated to everybody that you come into contact with. That's really good. I, I almost, in a sense, so much of your job as the, the writer is to try to simplify the complex, right? Like, you, like you, of course, you're going to have this sweeping story, you know, like, but in the end, what you're pitching, that premise, that hook, I kind of like what you said, a, a six-year-old's got to be able to hear it and go, huh? I mean, obviously, there are stories that six-year-olds, so, but, but, to, but the point I think you're trying to make is uh, we have to figure out, uh, as screeners have to, you have to be able to tell a complicated story and, but pitch it simply. Would that be a good way to say it? Yes. And that never stops. So that's why you should start with it from the very beginning. Like I know a lot of people, and again, we could argue this. I could probably argue both sides, but I just know that over time, you're going to have to talk to so many people who are then going to have to go to someone else where you're not going to be in the room. And they're going to have to explain it to their boss or to their crew members or to their marketing team. And you're not going to be there to, to be able to clear up any you know, inconsistencies or discrepancies. So what you need to be able to do is give them something that they can clearly articulate to possibly hundreds of other people. And particularly in my position now where I'm running a show where I'm constantly talking to the editor or I'm talking to the actors or I'm talking to the DP, I have to communicate clearly what I need to them in a way that is not amorphous, because if there's wiggle room there, then the whole show starts to get a little bit squishy. And actors in particular, like I heard a great thing, Matt Bomer, working with Matt Bomer on this um, show. And he said to a director who was kind of confusing him, you need to choose one of these two things that you've told me because I cannot give you both. Right? So right, right. all he is saying is, I need you to clearly articulate what you want, and then I will give you that thing. If you're just leaving it up to me, we're going to burn up a lot of time and energy and spend a lot of money kind of flailing around, and nobody in the movie and TV business is interested in that. Mm -hmm. you, you remind me of, in a sense, you're talking about it in a very pragmatic sense what i've always said which is art art has to have an opinion yes and 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 that opinion comes from the artist and you can disagree with the opinion you can you can feel you know whatever you want you can have whatever uh, opinion about what that artist is saying but art great art has an opinion and and the reason why i think a lot of films a lot of tv shows that maybe start to fall apart is because they don't really have an opinion. And I hear you saying you kind of have to take that all the way down to its most pragmatic sense in that uh, they're on set with other crew members, uh, you know, like, especially as a writer for a television show, and maybe you're there representing all the writers for the writer's room. And it's like, yes. no, we have to get this idea across because this idea matters four episodes later. And if we don't, and so it's a, uh, it's a fascinating uh, thing to think about. The, where, do, where then do you leave room for 
disagreement or change or, um, uh, you know, where do you leave room for when, um, you know, uh, uh, Christians might say when the, when the spirit moves, you know, like, where do you leave room for that? Right. So that should all happen before you reach the stage, right? Because the, the, the piece that people need to understand, writers in particular, the beginning of their careers, need to understand that when we step onto the stage, there's a timer running, just like in a taxi cab, and we are paying for every minute. There is money flowing out the door for every minute that from, you know, the call time until wrap. So that is not the time for disagreement and discussion because we're on the clock. There's money flowing out the door. Now, in in preparation, what you should have done is you should have created time with the actors, with the director, with the DP, with the studio, whatever it happens to be, to have all of the discussion and the disagreement that we're talking about now. Yes, that, that time and that back and forth and consideration of other points of view and being agreeable to hold ideas and consider them that coming from all these different places, that's part of the preparation part. But once the cameras start to roll, once the crew is there, there's very little wiggle room. Yeah. Now, to go back because because even money's money's already been spent just having those people there on the sets but the sets there's no doubt about it now being open to like you said there at the end about the spirit moves you on the day and there's something there's a little adjustment that you want to make or you see something in a performer's performance that maybe takes it in a different direction yes you want to provide a little bit of room there to accommodate some of those things. But to be brutally honest, they rarely pan out in my experience. And I'm not having like, I'm not having the Federico Fellini or the John Cassavetes experience. <laughs> right, like right. we're our way through this. That right, has not right. been my experience. My experience is the studio and the networks and my other showrunners and a bunch of people put a check mark at the top of every single page, meaning their expectation is that they're going to see executed what they put a check mark at the top of that page. If they don't, then I have to answer why. And I don't like to spend my day saying, yes, I promised you vanilla, but boy, chocolate was great on that day. Cause they really, they, they said okay to vanilla. They did not say okay to chocolate. And now that's a thing, which I am uncomfortable with in general. So while there is a little wiggle room, most of that spirit moving of creativity happens all in prep. It happens in the writing. It happens in the notes process. It happens in discussion with actors and directors. But on the day, we need to finish this shot in the way that we promised and move to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. Cause that's what production is. That's really good. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. Let people get to know you a little bit. Um, I was doing a little reading. You're, you're from Texas originally. Is that right? That is and, correct. Um, so ding, ding for me. There you go. Um, what, where did your interest, where did your interest in, in screenwriting come from? Were you always a, did you grow up a, a, a film nerd, a TV nerd? Like, wh where did this uh, interest and passion for screenwriting come from? No, not at all. I came, it was funny, I was talking to my wife about this a little earlier in the day. There's 
it, what I've come to find out about this business is there's no straight line. Nobody gets a straight line. Like, <laughs> right. If you think there's a straight line, I'm telling you, <laughs> let me disabuse you of that. So I was originally, I grew up in Texas, and um, I had some talent for drawing, and I, and I really thought I was going to go forward, and I, and I got my undergraduate degree as a painter. I, I was going to be a fine artist. Um, and then I was in my second year of art school um, and had a really, really um, difficult peer review. And a peer review is when you put your work up and everybody in the class gives their opinion on it. And your teacher has opinions and all that. And I'd done a big photo essay. This was a photography class. And it had been particularly difficult peer review. And the photography teacher pulled me aside and said, the reason you're so unhappy here, meaning art school, was because you're in you're interested in telling a narrative and fine art does not tell narrative stories and that was literally a record scratch wow six months later i was in los angeles wow so i, I came to la did you know i'm sorry i don't mean to cut you off here, but did you know what they meant by that like i did, did. It, i absolutely knew the minute wow. it came out of her mouth i was like oh I know exactly what you're talking about. Hmm. And I, I was interested in movies. I would watch movies and so forth. Um, but this will tell you how old I am. This was all like pre-premiere magazine. There was no movie line. There was nothing. Like getting information about who did what and how movies got made <laughs> in Texas was like, forget it. There was no, you didn't. I mean, I knew who Alfred Hitchcock was because of the TV show. Right. But like, I didn't know what he did. Yeah. So, so I had a vague idea of that Steven Spielberg was a director and I knew who George Lucas was. And like, I knew that there was a thing called directing, but I didn't know what that was. So anyway, I came to Los Angeles with the intent of going to film school and learning how you do this. And so that ultimately led me to uh, an interaction. This is another incredible story um i was going to ucla extension and i had a teacher who was running a class called directors on directing because that's where i thought i was going to go and the class was she had been an old school film editor here in los angeles and so she knew a lot of directors so she just invite her friends in and you got a different director every week so this one night, she's like, oh, we've got a very special guest tonight. You know, we're very lucky. I was very lucky he was in town and we could get him. Um, ladies and gentlemen, it's Sir David Lean. Gosh, <laughs> wow. I was like, what? So he was beautiful. He was lovely, so gentle and so funny and so great. But then I was like, oh, my God, like, I'm going to be the guy. Like, there's no way David Lean is getting out of this room without me talking to him. Like I, if, if I go down in flames here, that's fine. Cause this yeah. is never happening again. Yeah. So I cornered David Lane and I said, I'm sorry, I have to ask you the question that I'm certain everybody asks you. But if you were me in my spot, what's the best advice that you can give me? And he said, if I was doing this all over again, I would have been a screenwriter. I would have started with screenwriting. Wow. wow. And I was like, because I thought he, since he had come from editing, I thought that's where I thought that's where the answer is going to be. Like, no, 
he said, and I was like, well, why? And he said, because that person, that job is the only one who can make their next gig. That's the only person who can sit down and make their next job. The rest of us are waiting for somebody to call us. Wow. So if you can do it, and there's no guarantee that you can, but if you can do it, that's where I would start. I don't want to, well, if that's what David Lean says, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, and so I applied all around town to film schools and I got into the, the AFI as a screenwriting fellow and I got my master's degree from the AFI. Um, and, you know, as I got into that program and really someone, and I was lucky, I guess, that I knew absolutely nothing. So I, I had no expectations about a screenwriter supposed to be this or they're supposed to do that. Like, I was like, I don't even know. Or they, they wear their hats backwards and they wear hoodies. Like, that's all I know. <laughs> so I anything anybody told me as an instructor, I just accepted that that was right. Mm. You know what I mean? I was just like, okay, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. And I happened to be surrounded by at the AFI a bunch of really great screenwriters. Frank Pearson was one. Um, David Sontag was another. A, a, oh, a bunch yeah. of really great guys. Oh. And I was like, okay, I'm just doing what he says. I'm just doing what he says. And I was lucky that I had the temperament um, that I was able to learn the skill set and then have the discipline necessary to carry it off. I've never in my childhood or up until that moment, thought myself a writer. I did not. I was a visual person. I still am a visual person. I think that's important for what I do as a writer. But I thought my my world would be in the visual arts some way, not not as a word person. Well, I mean, it's pro I'm sure I'm sure it's helped you tremendously as a writer to be as visual as you are. By the way. Did you get into AFI because in your application, did you say, my good friend and mentor, David Lean, once said to me? <laughs> no. Well, it's really interesting, though. You know, that's, I don't know how they do it now. But at that point, what you did was you gave them your transcripts. You gave them a writing sample. And if that was approved, you came in for a committee meeting. So then when you got in the room with the people, with the department, that was a little hectic. That's one of the tougher meetings I've ever had, right? Because it's really, you're going to go forward or you're not going to go forward. And it, it, they sweat you a little bit. And they don't tell you what questions they're going to ask you. It's cold. It's a cold read. You're like, Woof. And I was lucky because one of the people that I really admired um, was Patty Chayefsky. Right. Um, network had been a huge influence. I loved network and um, Marty had really moved me. And um, so I was a huge fan of his. So somebody during the course of the in, I hate to call it interrogation, but it was the course, of the interrogation <laughs> was like, well, who would you most like to model your writing after? And I just said, Patty Chayefsky, two of the guys burst out laughing and I was like what's so funny and like we both work with Patty Chayefsky at Playhouse 90 he would be so pleased wow. to have somebody come in and say they wanted to be like him wow and I think that's the point I think like 
I was like, oh, I think I might get in now. Um, and I, I think that was the turning point. That's great. I love that. That's really cool. The uh, talking about a little bit about your kind of your visual aesthetic and <clears throat> how did that develop? Uh, did, was your fa- did you grow up in a family a family of artists or um, you know as you as this as you were developing this aesthetic visually was it something that just came naturally to you? I'm just curious what your influences were there. You know, I think again. Well, there were a couple of things, which is comic books were a huge thing for me. And I learned to read through comics. So I always identified um, reading and pictures as things that went together, words and pictures as things that went together. Mm. And then as a little kid, um, you know, I wanted to live in the world of those comics. And so I just asked for pencils and paper and everything so that I could draw the superheroes or the comic strip or whatever I was interested in. So I spent a lot of time, a lot of imaginative time, just duplicating the stories that I loved in comics. And so then that match, since comics are sequential storytelling, that just led to this picture needs to come after this picture after this picture in order for a story to be told. So that's really kind of, and then, you know, just the social nature of it, other people started to see that I could really draw. And then they started to praise that. And of course, as a kid, you want to do things that people praise you around. Um, And then it just, then it just became identified with my personality and then it just grew from there. So when you first came out to Los Angeles and and you got into AFI and you were there, and then when you came out of AFI, um, did you immediately start um, looking for um, television? Was that something that was like in your radar or was it, was it feature films? I wonder your films. It was interesting that the AFI at that time had no television program at all. You work strictly in features. So the um, in order to get your MFA, you had to write two features. And I did. And one of them went to Sundance in 1993. And the other was made into a TV movie. So I had those two trains running for a long time. Uh, independent film and then television movies. And... Um, you know, t- TV movies at that time. Um, well, they, well, they actually made them back then. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> so most networks had them on twice a week, like Tuesday nights and Sunday nights. Yep. That meant that's a lot of movies getting written and made. And I think in 1998, I wrote six. So it was, it was a huge business. Um, and then the indie film business, Dan, like now, was crazy and whatever. Um, so I never looked towards regular hour-long drama as an opportunity for me because I was really, I mean, TV movies are just a regular movie cut up into six acts, you know, but the feel of them, the storytelling is the same. You just do yeah. these little curtains, you know, whatever. Um for the commercial breaks, but I was writing movies. 
were you were you because you know there was you remember this there there was a mindset back in the day that television was less than and and to write for television what did feel for a lot of people for in features to be a step down and it wasn't just writing it was directing it was it was uh it was acting it was everything right and obviously that's not the case now the, the glass ceiling for television was shattered long time ago you could i don't know if the i don't know if you put that on the sopranos or whatever but 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 basically we're in this a very different time than what you're talking about so for you was it literally like would your agents and managers would they even consider putting you up for television like would you tell them don't even like what what was it in terms of your thought process is it did you see television at the time as as a lesser thing definitely i mean outside of a thing like maybe twin peaks or um like you said by the time we get to the sopranos and Mad Men and stuff like that the change has already started to happen but for the most part you're just talking about network tv or a few cable things and the stuff seemed kind of junky and clunky and I'd been educated at a blue ribbon institution and had very specific ideas about what quality was like and what I needed to stick to my artistic vision and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that my TV movies were any great shakes. They are not. Um, but they are still essentially feature ideas. Right. And still feature writing. Right. Which had a certain cachet over oh, I'm I'm a guy working on T.J. Hooker, or, you know what I mean? <laughs> you can see there's a I mean, I mean, you had to pick that show, but yeah, I guess. Right? So that's why you have to, you're like, yeah, that takes you right back to the moment. That's not even like Knight Rider. That's not even like a call right. So it's just, it. so you can see where the disparity was there. But since movies were still essentially events, and I think the Thanksgiving movie that I wrote, the movie that I wrote at the AFI that became a CBS TV movie, my very first one, screened on Thanksgiving and over 22 million people watched it on the night. Wow. So it was like, that was hectic. That was big. That's huge. Huge. That's you're not, that's not an episode of TJ Hook or whatever. So you could kind of carve out that life. And it seemed like um, that that was a great avenue. And I had that business not collapsed, I probably would still be there. Um, But it did collapse. And that's really the thing where I started to think, you know, I have to think seriously about hour long TV because all of my regular feature work. The development process takes so long that, and I had two small kids at that point, there was just not enough money in it. It it did not generate enough income for me to be able to um, finance my family. So I I had to look at um, diversifying my my abilities. And that's, that's what drove me to write my first spec pilot. I was like, I have, and by that time, Mad Men was on, The Sopranos were raging. There was a bunch of really good hour-long TV out there. And I was like, okay, well, I got to go over there now. Yeah. You touch on something that I think is really valuable for aspiring screenwriters. And that is, um, you you have to be generative. Like yeah. You have to write. And, and I meet far too many people 
uh, who say, you know, oh yeah, I've been working on this one script for three years. And I'm like, great. What else you got? Well, you know, I have an idea for a couple of things, but I'm really trying to get this one down. And my thought is, I don't know, may, maybe you'll make it, but you, I don't think so. <laughs> like, like you, you have to be constantly creating. And, and to your point, a lot of it is, is, um, is that a necessity, you know, just as you, you, you got to keep creating content so you get paid so that you can provide for, for, for your family so you can eat. But it also, I think, teaches uh, writers this, this value of constantly creating, constantly being generative. And so for you, how have you been able to do that? What, 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 is, what is it about that process that you've been able to continue to be so generative in your career uh, over these years? Well, I think that you hit the nail on that. Well, two things have happened. One is the, the business became more chaotic. It's more chaotic now than it ever has been because everything's disrupted, right? So if we just look back at what won the Academy Award this year, um, the people who make your phone won the Academy Award. So if you'd told me five years ago that the iPhone people <laughs> we're going to make the movie of the year. Yeah. I would have laughed you out of the room, but that's right. who we are. Right. So the, or the, the people and, or the people that delivered, you know, that package to your house, you know, that's right. <laughs> or the rent your DVDs by mail that those people <laughs> change the TV business. So the, cha the chaotic nature now that it's been a little bit like that forever. So that's the message, which is, the business is constantly transforming. You can wish it wasn't that way, but it is. So as the business transforms, you must, because you're providing content for that machine, you must tune yourself towards that. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, I need to be reading the trades every day and figuring out what people are buying and blah, blah, blah. No. But what I am saying is if you're still writing, the mid-level romantic comedy for Hugh Grant and, you know, um, uh, name any actress that you want, um, then you haven't noticed that basically movie theaters aren't in business anymore. Now, part of that has to do with COVID, but it, it predates COVID. So the mid-level romantic comedy, which may be your passion, um, is probably a poor uh, avenue for you to pursue unless you really go like, hey, I'm going to get this on Netflix, whatever. It's going to be Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock, and it's really going to be Romancing the Stone, but it's just different. You know what I mean? Like, so that's fine. But 10 years ago, you might have been able to sell that movie and have it go into theaters. But those options just aren't available to you now from the business standpoint. So when you have to figure out how to spend your creative capital, spending it on an avenue that is probably collapsed is not a great thing for you. So I've had to constantly readjust my focus throughout my career to go, okay, the business of entertainment, like we said before, is tilted more in this direction now. So what kind of stories can I go with right now? Like I was super lucky, as we talked about a couple of minutes ago, that I was a comic book nerd. It's just the world, that's just coincidence that these kinds of stories caught fire at the moment in which my skill set was in order. 
that's just fate. I'm super lucky that way. But as I said before, okay, I can't do TV movies anymore. I've got six of these on my desk that I would would have gone out and pitched, but there's nobody doing it. So now where is the job? Well, the job is an hour long TV. That side is exploding. So how am I going to generate stories for that? Um, you need to look at this world now of streaming. What do stream? What does a streaming hit look like? What are the elements involved uh, for making a great streaming show? If you go, if you went out today and you pitched a series that was 22 episodes long to a streamer and that was a procedural, they would laugh you out of the room. That just says you don't know what's happening. If you go and you say it's a character-driven cop drama and it's six episodes and he's got an evil twin, then okay, we got it. Um, But that's, that's part of your responsibility as a screenwriter to know what is going on in the industry today and gear whatever your passionate story is towards that avenue. Otherwise, you'll you'll never get your wheels on the ground. That's really, really good advice. What does a what does a professional screenwriter do other than actually writing? Uh, I, you know, we talk about this a lot at Act One in terms of you know your career. Um, so much of so much of your job sometimes has very little to do with the actual writing. That's just a small part of it. There's other parts that you have to be really good at, such as pitching and things like that. So I would ask you, for you, having been in the business as long as you have and worked in film and television, um, uh, talking to aspiring filmmakers, film uh, aspiring writers, um, what are the skills they need to be developing and investing in other than the most obvious, which is writing. Yeah. One of the things I tell people all the time is you have to really get your mind around the fact that you're a small business owner. Now you have to think like a small business owner. I am in the Quinn people's incorporated business, right? Which means I am research and development. I am manufacturing. I am the sales and marketing division, right? So I wear many, many hats over the course of the day and my day gets organized around whatever division needs the most amount of work that day. But I can't leave the marketing division, the sales and marketing division off because I just don't like doing that because going out and having to sell and be a salesperson is not my personality. So it just won't work for you. And you have to gain or gather people around you who can do it. Um, That kind of holistic view, holistic business view of what you do. So if we say that manufacturing is strictly the writing piece, that's you sitting down and you're typing and you're making the thing, then research and development, which is the pre part, is all the thing that we've just been talking about. What's going on in the business? What stories are out there? What am I reading? Where am I getting input for the manufacturing piece? Oh, I think these are right. 
I think this book is really cool. I'm going to adapt this novel. Or I heard a story from somebody about those life rights. Whatever that research and development piece is, that needs to take up a certain amount of your day. Manufacturing piece takes up a certain amount of your day. Then after you've built it, it's the pitch, it's a story idea, it's a script, whatever it happens to be. Then there is the sales and marketing piece, which is you pitching, interacting with agents and managers, getting to know uh, studio executives, who's where, creating that network of buyers that you can then go and say, look at the 2022 model. What have I got to do to get you into that car today? Now, it's very rare that any screenwriter, any person who's actually really good at going off in a room and writing something for eight hours a day by themselves is also really good at the sales piece. That is hard. But there are a lot of people out there who can give you tips and train you and get you into a spot where you can adequately do it. And the expectation isn't that you always be fantastic and wonderful at it, but you do, like we talked about earlier in this interview, you need the skill. You must have this skill of bringing my passion for this story and clearly articulating it across the table. If you can't do it, you're really going to have a hard time in this business. You just are. Mm -hmm. So you have to find people or instructional programs or whatever happens to be that can give you that um, because you are in charge of the sales and marketing for Quinn Peoples Incorporated. Nobody's going to do that for you. They're just really not. You bury the largest burden on that. So it has to, you have to get some skills together. And those can be learned. I learned them. That's really good. Yeah, that is, excuse me. Yeah, that is something that I find is a constant um, conversation I'm having with aspiring writers, which is, um, and and by the way, uh, actors too. Yes. Um, Just, uh, and everyone, you know, like one of the hardest things that people don't talk about is directing in this town because, you know, you know, a TV show, maybe it has eight, 10, writers uh, a show they're gonna have one director and yeah. so you know and and so breaking into directing is even tougher but the only way you're going to get better is to direct more to get out there get yourself out there sell your stuff sell your vision for things and and try to acquire projects that you can come on and be a part of and um and it, it, this is a this is something that when you see people who are successful in this business over time what you see is you see that hustle you see that constant uh, and in reinventing themselves as well, which is something you spoke about um, earlier. So let me ask you this. This is a conversation that we have a lot at Act One, and that is this idea of finding your voice. And, you know, uh, that's really big right now, right? Like there's, there's this big push in the business. I'm not saying it's new, but there is a big push right now to find new, unique voices. Um, and um, And so having said that, so we know that, so we know that we know it's important to, to, to be original, to be creative, to have this kind of unique voice. However, at the same time, you have a lot of these like big IPs. And so like, I think you're the perfect person to ask this question because you've worked on some fantastic 
you know, big name IP content. I mean, whether it's Stephen King work or uh, all of all the Marvel shows that you've worked on. And so there, there must be some sort of balance here that has to take place in terms of how, how does someone bring a unique voice to the table while essentially writing someone else's idea or someone else's concept, this IP, this other IP. So my question to you is how have you been able to do that? And, and, and what is that process like? Right. So um, the, I use this example all the time. It's not particularly a personal example. I get to that in a second. Um, a lot of people had attempted superhero movies for on and off for a while, and some had been successful, some had not. Then when you went to see the very first Iron Man movie, you walked out of that movie and you were like, whoa, like that's it. Yeah. That's because John Favreau loved Iron Man and knew what made a perfect Iron Man story. Now, he brought his own flavor along with Robert Downey Jr., but he knew what the genetic components, what the, what the classic, classic qualities of that were, of the Iron Man mythos, like, it would be so cool to fly around in armor, like, you know what I mean? Like, and be a billionaire and be able to have all these things. Like, he just knew what was essential to the story and made sure that those got onto the screen. Now, behind that was his voice, which is a little cheeky, a little comedic, a little sarcastic, but super poppy. I mean, even if you watch Swingers, you can see it happening. So there's not a big jump between Swingers and Iron Man. You know the same voice is there. So that's what we're talking about here. If I come to Stephen King 11-22-63, I know, because I love Stephen King, I know what makes a perfect Stephen King story. I know that element is immovable. That must be there. I don't get to make a choice about that. Now, I could, but I risk failure. So why do that? Just understand what it is that makes Stephen King stories work. Then behind that comes my personal voice, which is what you're talking about. And that voice gets discovered by you reflecting on What do I see in the world that other people miss? Where are the things that I am soaking up, the details that I see, the music that I hear, the color that I absorb, that the average person misses? Because I've been tuned a certain way to respond to those things. And now I must master the technical ability to get that onto the page clearly, right? So I talk to people about this all the time. And this comes from music. If I was learning to play the trumpet, I'd have to run scales every day. Scales are boring. There is nothing expressive about going, but I must, in order to play the trumpet, be able to do that without thinking. And that takes practice. So being able to take those unique things that only you see in the world, those really observational things that are unique to you and get them onto the page clearly is you running scales. 
Now that means you're going to have to write a lot of pages that won't be very good. They just won't. But that's the practice. You must practice. And then after a certain amount of time, and I can guarantee this, you will never think about it again. Your voice will naturally come out in the way that if we listen to Miles Davis, we listen to any Miles Davis record, if it had no sticker on it, you'd know it was Miles Davis because the way in which he interprets any song comes through his filter naturally. He's not sitting down to go, oh, what is the Miles Davis version of My Funny Valentine? He knows My Funny Valentine. He plays it through his unique perspective and he does not think about it. His voice naturally comes forward because he ran a lot of scales. He played a lot of music and he did a lot of made a lot of mistakes before he got here. So getting to that voice is about you practicing your uniqueness and being able to articulate it on the page clearly so that other people go, wow, you're the only person could have done that. That is really good, Quentin. You you remind me of I have a, a a friend, a good friend who he's a Juilliard trained. Um, uh, I don't know. He plays the clarinet. I don't know. Is it a clarinetist? I don't know what it's called. Yeah. But um, he had not. I was talking. This was several years ago. He had not performed because he's 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 also a he's a successful actor, and um, but he's this classically trained like at Juilliard, just this amazing next level clarinet player. He had not performed the clarinet publicly in years. Like he had told me it had been years because he's doing other things. Right. And um, he said, uh, but he gets up every morning and practices his clarinet. Yeah. And I was like, are you certain? He goes, yeah. He said, I have to. And, uh, and I, I just was blown. I was just blown away by that kind of that level of discipline and focus and I love what you're saying because I think there's something here to the to the kind of the greater point, which is um, you can't avoid the hard work as a writer. That hard work of the doing, the getting up and the writing, just getting yeah. something on the page and then just doing it over and over again, and how something over time does eventually, you know, click in it. But it takes that perseverance to just to do the work. You can talk about theory. You can read all these, you know, all these books, you know, you can take all these programs and all this kind of stuff and listen to all these podcasts. But in the end, you, you kind of, you just got to get down and do the work, right? Dude, it's just put your button and share. You know <laughs> what I mean? That's the only way it's going to happen. It was one word after the other for thousands and hundreds and thousands of words so that it almost becomes, um, just a natural outgrowth of who you are. I People ask me all the time about tricks and blah, blah, blah. And I, I've taught at the university level and taught college students and all that. And I say, if you can make it, an activity like brushing your teeth or putting on your pants, that will be an advantage because you don't go at the end of the day and go, you know what? man, I really did not brush my teeth well today. That was really a failure on my part. And I tomorrow, I, I just don't know if I can brush my teeth again. So if it's just, this is what I do. And if I don't have to have binary thinking about it, it wasn't a good day. It wasn't a bad day. I just showed up and I did the work. 
then after a certain amount of time, it will be a natural expression of who you are. And you'll, there will be flow there that you never thought was possible before. Yeah. Wow. I was going to say that uh, during the pandemic, some of us uh, did have to debate whether to put pants on. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> that, it was debatable whether. But you didn't get in an argument with yourself about, well, was that a good pair of pants? Or- <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So speaking to some of your um some of your process a little bit. Do you have a particular way you like to approach a, a script? I mean, obviously when you're writing for television, um, I've always said that deadlines are, are, are a creative's friend, you know, yeah. when you're creative, it's like deadlines are a good thing for creatives, but, um, but in your process, uh, do you, have you learned kind of a basic way of doing, uh, doing every screenplay in terms of, do you, do you do an outline first? Do you do a beat sheet? Um, uh, talk just a, just a little bit about your process. for Yeah. Writing. I mean, it's over the course of the years and I know everybody's going to be so bummed when they hear it. Cause it's super boring. Um, there's the initial idea that thing is written down in longhand on some paper nearby whenever I'm having the idea. That's just rambling, blah, blah, blah. Then the next piece is is note cards. And I use them in the writer's room. I use them a feature. I just, I just, I'm just using a three by five card. And I'm and I'm starting act one, scene one. This is what I think it is. And I'm carding that thing all the way out, right? So the great thing about cards is it's portable. I can throw them away. I can move them to different spots in the structure, whatever. They're great, great tools. So everything goes to cards first. And what's on your, what's on the card? What are you, what, what is each card? Is that so basically what happens is on that card is the setting right for the scene. And then what I think is going to happen in that scene. Right. So okay. there's no dialogue. It's nothing like that. It's like Joey gets the gun. Mary sees him get it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's just super uh, basic. In conjunction with that, often I am creating character biographies off on the other side. Like, let's say I get a little stuck with cards or I don't know what the next scene is. Then I'm also filling out some details about who I think the characters are. This is where I think they came from. These are their personality traits. It'd be good to do this, that, and the other. So the character bios are growing kind of at the same time as the story is growing. So I have, I have plot things happening and I have personal things happening. That way, when I get stuck on either side, I got someplace else to go. Once that's finished, meaning I've, I've written the end on the final card, Now I'm ready to go back and actually outline. And this is a traditional outlining process, right? Now it's a scene. Well, what is this scene? Okay, got a gun. Where do you get a gun? Was there somebody else there? Oh, there's a store clerk. You know, whatever it happens to be, I'm actually outlining there. So the whole outline is created at that point. And again, things fall away. Bad ideas present themselves. I'm I'm in the midst of that. But I'm getting that all worked out in the outline. Then. Once the outline is tight, I'm I'm ready to write. I'm ready to write a screenplay. And now I'm I'm into draft mode. That makes for me, I can only speak for me, 
that makes the writing of the draft the easiest part of the process. All of the heavy lifting, all of the work has already been done. So the typing part is actually a joy. I love it. It makes the draft, for me anyway, there's no writer's block that ever happens inside a draft. Mm -hmm. Because if something isn't quite working, I just have the next scene to go on to. I have the outline. I just go to the next one. I'll come back and I'll fix that later. But I know where I'm going next and I don't lose any momentum. So I can generate a draft very, very quickly, very quickly. That part of the writing goes quickly. Um, and then from there, once I have the draft, now you're into notes and revisions, and that, that can go on endlessly. That's a, re- that's a really, thank you for breaking that down that way. It was really insightful. You, you've written for the last, you know, a lot of your shows here in the past couple of years have been for streamers, Hulu. And Netflix. Yes. Um, does Hulu and do they have similar approaches to the to the networks in terms of do you have to shoot up your um, shoot up your outlines to get approved by yeah. the by yeah. the networks and then come back? So that that's still the same kind Everybody's of process. Saying, like I said, nobody likes surprises, right? <clears throat> so they may be slightly surprised by things they see in an outline, but they should not be surprised by a draft. They never should be surprised by a draft. Like maybe they don't like a joke or some of the tone of what you did, but they are, you're, you should not be wrestling with the story really at that point, that all should have been taken care of in the outline piece should be, doesn't always work that way, but it, it should be. So yes, there's a lot of back and forth on outlines and hopefully less back and forth on drafts. That's the way they prefer it. And I happen to prefer that the same. Now, did you have a room for echoes or did you? We, did, we had a Zoom room. Yeah, you, you, you had a Zoom room. So uh, as the co-showrunner, when people were pitching ideas up to you, um, what is that What is that process like? Because um, you've obviously been the one who's been pitching up to a showrunner and now you're a showrunner hearing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there, is there something to the process that you have maybe learned or grown, grown in, or I'm just curious about now that, now that you're at that level, uh, what's your, uh, how are, how is the process maybe different for you now? Well, the, it's different in that I have been tasked with knowing what the show is. You, by the time you assemble a room, the network or studio assumes and they are investing in your version of the show. They're expecting you to deliver the show you have been talking to them about that they bought. So, so many of the pitches that get knocked down uh, in a room are because that's not the show. Not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying that's not our show. Right. So I've already had this history with a bunch of people. Some people have spent money. They're spending money on you on the version of the show that I sold them. So when you pitch to me that they should all dive to the bottom of the lake and be down there for this whole episode. And what I pitched them was a soap opera. I'm like, no, right. like we're not. That's not our show. That's a cool idea. But that's not our show. Right. Whereas before. When, when I was just a staff member, often I didn't understand why some pitches got on the board and some pitches didn't, or I didn't understand the ratio. I didn't entirely understand why some things were making it through and some things weren't. But now that I know from, from my POV, 
that the show has been pre-sold to somebody. They have an expectation about what that show is. I'm in charge of delivering that. Then I am really the first filter for that. That idea is not going in here because it doesn't fit my vision of what was promised to Netflix or Hulu or whoever it happens to be. Um, so you, that's just that's you, part of it. What gets slapped down most often? And obviously, I'm I'm asking questions here that are you know fairly generic, but um is it plot is it more character is it more it's like that's not it's, it seems like the way you're describing it it would be more character based because it's like no, no no that's not our character they our character wouldn't wouldn't make that choice or, or am i kind of um mixing no, i think that it falls into three categories it's not the correct tone of the show it's not um character that's not how I see the character that you're pitching on, right? I don't think we have an understanding about who this character is. And then that I'll knock down a plot, the third category, I'll knock down a plot pitch usually around logic or it opens up story avenues that we don't want to go down, right? So, right? So often people will pitch things that they haven't thought thoroughly enough through that just knock too many dominoes down in a direction that we're not going. Yeah. So say, you know, that, that, that won't work because then we got to talk about this, that, and the other, that that's not where we're going because I have an idea of where the show, because I've already pitched to the network and sold to the network, a certain series of arcs. And I know where we need to end up and I don't want to go down this side road. So again, that's all about me keeping everybody in the right place, making the same show. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, if it's not a logic problem, it's a Pandora's box problem. Uh, I'm a first year. I'm a first year staff writer. What do you What do you want from me? I want you to pitch like crazy, and I want you to pitch things that could only have come from you. Like I, I brought you onto this show because like we said before, you can think in a way that I cannot think because I don't want to fill a room full of me's. Okay. Otherwise I would have just written all the episodes myself. People got hired into a room because they think in ways that I don't think I want to hear from that. Um, and yes, that means that, a lot of the stuff that you may pitch, certainly if you're a first year writer, are not going to get on the board. But what I want to hear is your unique perspective. So you don't necessarily hold the view that, you know, hey, you need to wait a year or two to earn it. You just need to sit there quietly and observe like you want them day one. You want them to be engaged and, and, and pitching it with everyone else. Yeah, there's too much work. There's no free ride. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. There is no coming in and sitting on the bench for for two years. That's that's lame. No way. Everybody's got to carry their own burden. Um, And we have to do a lot of work. And generally, we have to do it very quickly. So many hands make light work. So that's why you got into this room. Um, I did not hire you in order to pay to train you. Not at all. That's good. That's good. No wallflowers. You got to get in there. and You do. And if you're doing it wrong then it's the showrunner's responsibility to take you aside and say, don't do that. Only do this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But don't sit back and wait for an invitation. You, you you got hired to pitch. So let's pitch. Let's go. Yeah. 
Um, I want to touch bases on this. Has been a great conversation. Yeah, I've, I've you've 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 dropped a, quite a few um, gems for mm-hmm. our audience here. I want to kind of wrap up our conversation and shift focus just a little bit. And uh, and reading a little bit about you, we have so you know I have mutual friends like Scott Reynolds and yes. Jim Kruger, and these are buddies that you know first connected us. And mm-hmm. um, but I discovered that you and I have uh, one more person. Um, and that is uh, our dearly beloved uh, Dallas Willard. Oh, yes. And I, I'd love just to know a little bit about um, just um, I got to spend time with Dallas uh, towards the end of his life. Yes, and um, his wife, I'll never forget that she sent me the kindest note. And anyway, I, I, I wonder if you could just speak just a little bit about your um, you know, you're just appreciation for Dallas and, 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 and just and, and some of his works and the influence that he's had on, had on your life. And, and, uh, just speak a little bit about that. Yeah. I'd have to say Dallas is the biggest male influence on my life outside of my father. Um, and I was lucky enough to, uh, be around Dallas over an extended period of time, um, from about, I'm going to say 2005 until the end of his life. Um, and I am a graduate of the Renovari Institute of Christian Spiritual Formation, which is basically a seminary that he created with Richard Foster and John Orberg and a bunch of other super smart, lovely people. So it was there that I really, really got to mix it up with him. But I, I met him first when I at All Saints Beverly Hills, which Episcopal Church um, in, in here in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, when he taught for a weekend and then preached on a Sunday. So I went to all the seminars that he taught on the Friday and Saturday and then listened to him preach on Sunday. And literally that that was a, such a massive, that weekend signaled such a massive turning point in my life because the way in which Dallas spoke about um, the transformation of character, the creation of the inner life made such perfect sense to me and seemed achievable. Like it didn't seem super woo-woo, like weird. It (laughs) seemed like something that you could actually do and become a better person. So Dallas's work as a philosopher, as primarily as a logician, as somebody who was built on logic, could carry you through very complicated ideas step by step so that you were like, oh, I see how that works and I see why it works. And it was the key to everything that came about for me in terms of, um, I say to people all the time, I said I was a Christian before Dallas, but I was only a Christian after Dallas. Wow. Wow. Um, Because I did not really understand um, apprenticeship. Right. I didn't really understand what was necessary and what was being asked of me Um, and that there was a method to transforming my inner state, my inner character into Christ likeness Um, because nobody had ever explained it to me. Right. That nobody had. And so being in his presence, reading his books, um, talking to him. 
studying his teaching, certainly being a part of Renovare. Um, he was the white hot center of all of that. And then I, I tell people this, I tell this story on Dallas all the time because it was really transformational. Um, he came to speak at Renovare in our second year. And this is probably two or three months before he passed away. So he was very, very sick with cancer. And he stood up at the front of that room and for three to four hours, he spoke nonstop. And I'm telling you, he glowed from within. Like you could see there was something different happening in him. And people were weeping by the time we were done because we had witnessed something that was supernatural. And everybody in that room was like, if that's what it looks like to have cancer, then I'm not afraid of cancer. Wow. Wow. And I was like, that is what, that's the life he has been talking about, which is a spiritual life, which transcends physical existence. That physical reality is not all there is. And he just got up there and he demonstrated it. And I was like, that is for real. Like that is for real. And that's where I want to go. Um, and that was just my experience of him always was like, that's where I want to go. I, w- I want what he's got. So whatever it is that made that, I want to go in that direction. That is beautiful. What a beautiful story. It's a great way to end our conversation. And I, I hope that uh, maybe our audience will be inspired by that little uh, anecdote, and they'll go out and get some of his books and read. Yeah, Renovation of the Heart, has, which is the book that changed my life, has just been released. It's 20th anniversary edition. I highly, highly recommend that book. Um, so it's a brand new edition. Go out and get it. It's lovely. Uh, will it make you jealous to know that I have a signed copy of that book? It will. Mission accomplished. Yes, I finally. Yes, I have one on you, Quentin. I have ah, something on you. I'll Just hunt kidding. you down and see. Uh, <laughs> hey, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm so grateful to you. And you. Um, once again, I think that people are just going to really be influenced by a lot of things that you're saying. Uh, we like to close our Act One podcast by praying for our guests. I wonder if you would allow me to do that for you. Oh, yes, please. I love it. Okay, let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we just pause and thank you. Now, thank you for men like Dallas Willard who have had such tremendous influence um, for the good. And uh, God, thank you for Quentin as one of those men. And we just pray a blessing upon him, a blessing upon his life, his work, his family. Uh, God, I pray that I'm just so grateful for just his generosity of spirit and kindness to be able to come and uh, spend some time talking with us. And God, as, as he as he sets about to do the work that you have crafted him to do, uh, we pray, God, that he would just fill your presence and your and your pleasure as he does those things and fill him with uh, just a uh, spirit of uh, confidence and uh, of your creativity and just help him to write great things and tell great stories and uh, be a, uh, pray a blessing upon his family. Pray you'd watch over his family and uh, just thank you for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. 
to financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com.